Hi everyone and welcome to This Week in Ukraine, a show where the newsroom of the Kiev Independent explains Ukraine's biggest events in just under 30 minutes. I'm your host, Anastasia Lapatina. I'm back to hosting and producing the show after a short maternity leave, so you'll be hearing more of me from now on. Today we're talking about Ukraine's withdrawal from Avdivka and what the fall of this small town means for Ukraine's war effort going forward. I'll be speaking to Glenn Grant, a retired UK lieutenant colonel and military analyst who's previously advised Ukraine's Ministry of Defense. But before we get into that interview, here is what you have to know about Avdivka. It's a small town, roughly 20 kilometers away from Russian-occupied Donetsk. It was actually briefly captured by Russian-led militants in 2014, but Ukrainian military eventually deoccupied it. Before this full-scale Russian invasion, it has seen low-intensity fighting, periodic attacks, but has now been virtually completely destroyed from many months of Russian assaults. Ukraine's top general, Alexander Sirske, announced on February 17th that Ukraine was withdrawing from Avdivka to preserve military personnel, and the town fell to the Russians. With that in mind, let's get into the interview. Mr. Grant, thank you so much for finding the time for us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So let's dive right into it. Let's discuss the withdrawal of Ukrainian forces from Avdivka. And I wanted to ask you, just in general, what's your assessment of the timing of the decision to withdraw and also the manner in which it ultimately happened? Oh, there's a, a, lot, of, a, a lot of very challenging and difficult questions just wrapped around what you've just said. Um, I think the first thing is that that you know we've we've seen that there was going to have to be a withdrawal for probably the best part of two months now. This is not and a why surprise. Is that? Well, because you can't fight with an enemy on three sides of you. I mean, all the rules are very clear about this. I mean, it's it's a it's there are rules about fighting. There are rules, and you don't break those rules. And one of those rules is that. That you know, if you're in this position, you straighten out the line immediately because it takes three or four or even five times as many soldiers to hold three sides as it does to hold a single straight line. If you go back through history, you look at wars and everything, people always try to straighten out the line because otherwise you're eating your reserves on the front line. Um they can't they can't attack you any better if you're on one one straight line than they can when they've got Three. So so you always do this. So we've known for a long time that there was going to have to be a withdrawal. It, when you know that there's got to be a withdrawal, there's got to be a withdrawal plan of some sort. And that plan should have been that plan should have been laid and talked through weeks ago so that the boys actually knew what their escape routes were, how they were going to get back. Everybody knows the form of it. And there are different types. You know, there's withdrawal. There's a withdrawal out of contact, a withdrawal in contact, a withdrawal at night, a withdrawal at day. So each one of those has got a separate uh, bunch of things that have got to happen to it. And you've right. got to have clear, like the fire support plan has got to be laid out several weeks in advance because you actually need to to do things. I mean, one of the things about attacking with it, uh, sorry, withdrawal it, when you're being attacked is is you counterattack quickly. Hard. You push the enemy back very quickly, and then you escape. Now, if you're not going to do that, you 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 you're in trouble, and and it's quite clear, I think, from 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 the reports from the soldiers themselves that it it was a bit of a mess. Um, I know that several people have said, you know, everything was wonderful. The general staff always say everything's wonderful, um, and in fact, the more they say everything's wonderful, the more you realise that it's a mess. 
um, because they, they, I'm sorry, but they just lie in these cases. Um, so the soldiers at the front line, clearly we've lost a lot. Um, clearly there's been, you know, just, just a mess in the withdrawal. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, you can't stop some sort of mess in a withdrawal. You can't, there, there will always be problems, but you can plan for it well in advance and make sure that everybody knows exactly how we're going to do this and what they're going to do. And let's talk a little bit about the Russian side now. What exactly was it the Russians did here in this battle, which, you know, has been lasting for months and months that, you know, led to this point? What specific strategy maybe they were employing that, you know, the city fell just days ago? Well, I think the strategy was, if you look at the maps, week on week on week has been quite clear, which is to surround Avdika uh, from, the, from the north through the forests and from the south through the, the forests and fields which is what they've done quite successfully over a long period of time. So there was no, it's, there's no surprise here, no surprise what was going to happen. And then you have to ask yourself, what is the, the value of hanging on to Avdiika once it starts to get trashed, once they start destroying all the buildings and everything else? You know, what is it that we're actually holding on to? And then you have to ask that next decision about what's more important, people or a, or a, or a, ruined, a ruined town. So why do you think the Ukrainians, you know, decided to stay? Why do you think our government decided to hold on? I, I think there's a bit of political, I know, you know, there are people saying this is deliberate to try and actually trash the, the armed forces. I don't think that. I think it's just a lack of military understanding of, of how you actually do things and not understanding that, that the value for, for Ukraine are the people. The value for, for Ukraine are the soldiers. You don't leave them to die if you don't have to. But what about the argument that, you know, we were trying to wear out the Russian forces, that this was a similar situation yeah. like in Bakhmut? No, if they're moving past it, it's not, this is a nonsense argument. Yeah, we are killing them, but we can kill them in better ways. And anyway, mm -hmm. the system that is there of wearing them out. Well, they did take the city in the end, so. In other words, the, Russian, the Russians have got the advantage. They can attack where they want to when you, when you fight in this manner. Um, uh, is it possible to fight in another manner? Well, you've got to find another manner. This is this is the whole the, the whole essence of of fighting is you don't fight in the way the enemy wants you to fight, which is what we're doing at the moment. We are actually giving him the the benefit of 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 time, space, numbers, everything, and and that that's that's not a good way to do things. Well, so the official line of reasoning here that kind of explains this whole mess, uh, it pretty much absolves the military of most responsibility because the government and the military top commanders are saying that this is because, you know, the Western aid stopped flowing and, you know, the Congress is all messed up in the U.S. and, you know, we need more help and we had to withdraw because there weren't enough supplies. Do you think do you think that's the best explanation we have, or is that not the whole story? It sounds like you're leaning towards the latter. That's, that's not the whole story. Of course, it's not. I mean, there, there it is a big reason. But then, then if you're running out of ammunition uh, and you're running out of, of of things to fight with, the last thing you do is is throw your people in unless you have to, because you need to keep them for the next. You know, I've, I say it, and I said it often: a dead man can't fight tomorrow. That's it. You have to keep people alive for, for the longer-term battle. So there's got to be some longer-term thinking. Keeping Avdiika is short-term thinking. 
short-term political thinking um, makes maybe makes us look good. And it's no good counting, yeah, we've killed thousands of Russians because there are thousands more coming. And, and, and this is, you know, they're not going to run out of this, uh, run out of resources before Ukraine runs out of resources in the current. It's going to be the other way around. So, the, you know, there has to be a different way of doing things. So it almost looks like the Russians are employing that strategy of, you know, wearing us out and they're actually Yes, they are. of course they are. Of course, that's exactly what they're trying to do. They don't care about the loss of resources because it doesn't matter to them. People don't matter to them at all. They have no, they have no value. They're, the soldiers that they throw in the front line are ammunition. You know, go, go back to the Second World War. Go back to, you know, defense of, of the major cities. They're ammunition. Anybody Man, woman, children, throw them out to die. It doesn't matter. This is how Russia fights. And we should not try and fight them on their ground. That, that, that's because it's, because it's, a losing, it's a losing strategy. It's the small Soviet army fighting the big Soviet army. Um, so what do you and, think and Ukraine could have done here, though, given the move, extreme constraints move, move, and supplies? Move, 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 move. Move and fight, move and fight. Even if it means that you have to come back a bit more Come back, go forward, come back, go forward. Use the knowledge and intelligence of the soldiers to actually to fight in the best way they can. When you leave them in one spot, they are dead meat. Absolutely guaranteed. So you What have you to let well they're because they're, everybody knows where they are. The Russians just bomb them. Right. So you have to move. You have to use space as much as possible. And that means okay, it does mean giving up some more, a bit more. Ukrainian land, but in the space of giving up a bit of Ukrainian land in there, which we've lost before, by the way, and taken it back, you actually give the soldiers the opportunity to actually to fight in a better way, to actually to use the drones better, to, to not allow the enemy to pin them down. Because at the moment they're pinned down, you have a Bakhmut, you have an Avdiika, you have, you have a, a Debolsova. So the enemy wants to pin them down to spots. The one thing they can't deal with is when they don't know where you are, where they don't know what you're going to do. That is because Russians don't like that. It's an uncertainty. And that's the best way of fighting them is against uncertainties, using the skills to actually to take them on in a different fashion. So the Russians are claiming that they've actually taken hostage anywhere between like hundreds to even thousands of Ukrainian soldiers. I mean, if you read their propagandist telegram channels, The claims are kind of outrageous. Ukraine denies those numbers, but they did, the Ukrainian commanders did say that several soldiers were taken hostage. Have you seen those reports? What do you make of them? Why is, is Russia inflating them? Yeah, of course they're inflating them, but also I would suggest that the Ukrainian side is deflating them and, and not, not, not being honest with, with, with what, what the losses are. I mean, it's very easy for Ukraine. They just publish the number, publish the names. We know we know which unit they're in. They were in one 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 brigade, so they could publish how many people are back and how many people are not to stop discussions like this. But Then we haven't it will done show that. Clearly, it will show clearly how it went. The moment you hide mm -hmm. away from things, the the truth of these things, then you are in the trouble that the society doesn't know. And what happens is society then gradually loses trust in the the military system. And I think this is what's happening now. And it's happening now, and it and it and the military. I'm sorry, but it deserves to happen because the military are not doing their, what they did properly. I mean, it go back to Second World War losses, First World War, Second World War 
in, in the Western countries, losses were actually very clear. Who was, who was killed, where they were killed, when they were killed. It wasn't hidden away. Maybe for two, three days, yes. There's always a two or three days while you sort out what's happened. But then you mm-hmm. come clean and tell the truth. You know, we lost ships with a lot of people on them. Still, you know, we didn't pretend that the ship was still sailing. And everything was okay and in control. It wasn't. It was sunk. I think this issue of societal trust is a really big issue right now because, to be honest, in the last like few weeks, in the last week, is the situation in Odivka was becoming increasingly dire and obvious to anybody, non-military expert, just regular civilians. People started writing posts like soldiers. We've all seen those Instagram posts of soldiers in the fight writing that like, we have to get out of here. Like, this is hell. Like, yeah. we don't understand what's the strategic value of us being here. There are so many dead bodies of our guys, et cetera, et cetera. People started sharing all of this and it was like a wave. Ukrainians do this very yeah. well when we're unhappy about something. We, we make sure yeah. people online know. And to be, so to be honest, when the government announced the withdrawal, I almost felt like it was the society's win, that like we pressed hard in a way. And I'm sure that's not the only reason why it happened, but you know, I, I almost felt like the government started feeling that like, oh, like the society is boiling. Like so many people know somebody who's in Avdivka. So many people know somebody who's died in Avdivka. Like we have to respond a little bit quicker. I wonder if like this wasn't publicized, if, if, if the society, if the civil society wasn't screaming their lungs out about it, would it happen even later than this? Yeah, it, might, it might have not happened at all. I mean, there's always the danger that they, they've just been completely overrun one night. Um, but just, just by sheer numbers. I mean, this is the problem when you're fighting numbers, um, that, that it, 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 it's that when you get down to small groups fighting big numbers, you just can't deal with it. You can't cover the space anymore. And that's why it's so important to tighten the, tighten the fighting space at every opportunity. So the soldiers are, uh, have a, have a better, a better opportunity to fight. So looking ahead a little bit, how would you assess the readiness of Ukrainian forces to defend frontline cities around Avdivka and all across the front line? And I'm asking this in the context of growing concerns by military experts such as yourself, journalists, about the lack of defensive preparations that Ukrainian military has had in the last several months. Well, I mean, what is, what is, what is difficult or almost impossible to know is, is how much uh, defensive preparations are taking place. Um, I know that, that, you know, there was a comment by someone that, that saw a, a load of engineer vehicles going, heading towards Avdiika, uh, on the road, um, to actually obviously to make trench works and things like this. But the, then I have a couple of questions is who's planning the trench works? So are they going to be put in the best military position? So which commander is actually laying out exactly where those trench works go? And and the comment from the, the the person was that all the vehicles going were old, so you know we've got thousands of uh, engineering companies in Ukraine that can that can make smart smart roads and could make smart trench works and everything else because they are engineers, um, but those weren't being sent. That it was just old and ramshackle. So there's there is a, a serious problem with with uh, imbalance of system. In, in the defense forces i mean the, 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 it's it's quite clear that each of the uh, the, the area uh, commanders does not have a full set of engineering equipment at, at his uh, at his benefit 
uh, and that maybe maybe we have we just haven't planned that Russia was going to keep doing what it's doing. I mean, so we've been taking too short term a view uh, and not actually planning defense in depth. And I mean in depth, like 50, 60 kilometers in depth, so that at least if the boys are pushed back, they go back to something that is as good or even better than where they were before. And if these things are not taking place, then I'm sorry, but that's criminal. And if it's criminal, then someone should go to prison for it. Um, because, you know, again, there are military rules. If you break the rules, right. you get pushed back. You get you get beaten. This is it. You have to follow the rules. You can't say this is a new war and nobody's done done this. These things about war are no different from any other war in the past. And actually, to jump on this exact point is that I've seen so many Ukrainians um, talking about how the Battle of Avdiivka um, seems so similar to perhaps the Battle of Bakhmut or even what happened in Mariupol, although that's a, 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 a very unique case in itself, because all of these were like very lengthy, extremely bloody, very tragic um, battles that Ukraine ultimately lost. And I, I'm seeing a lot of people online and people I talk to, people in the military who say that like, is, is Ukraine not learning its lessons? Like people seem really angry and confused. Like this seems obvious. Why didn't we pull out earlier, et cetera, et cetera. So, what would you say about that? Is Ukraine really not learning any lessons? I think, I think there's a degree of truth in that. Um, the, the, the lessons are not being learned. And, uh, and, um, and you know, one of the problems is, is that the, still the senior organization is still the old army. It's changing. It is changing. People are coming through who've been fighting. But still, organizationally, it's still the old army. We haven't changed the structure. We haven't changed the organization. We haven't changed the processes. At the upper levels, and what do you mean by the old army? You mean well, they are the people who were in the system in in twenty in twenty twenty two. So, so they they were the people who were following the the battle as it was twenty fourteen to twenty twenty two, which in many cases was just a, a very simple defensive battle, um, of which we had a degree of control, of which we had a degree of of uh, good surveillance because of uh, you know what. What what the, the what the civilian or civilians have put in place the cameras and everything else. Well, now we don't have control, and when you don't have control, you have to fight differently from when you've got control. Um, and as I say, you know, then you have to use space, you have to use mobility, you have to use different ways of actually taking on the enemy. Um, but and it just seems as though we're not, as you say, we're not learning lessons. We're not learning that if the, uh, you know at a certain point. It, it was quite clear, as I said, two months ago, that Avdika was not going to hold. Or if it did hold, it was going to be bloody and we were going to lose thousands of people. That was clear. It's, it's also true. clear like when you look map, at Maps of Avdika being encircled started yeah, yeah, circulating yeah. months ago. Yeah. yeah, quite quite clear. And you can actually see that the front line already is not coherent anymore, that the people are in, in, in almost like fortresses, which are bound to be destroyed and overcome. They're bound to be because that is what Russians do best. You know, simple, simple, centralized attack using massive weapons, massive people onto points. Mm -hmm. That is their strength. Their weakness is they can't stand unpredictability. They cannot like, deal with you know something that happened in Kharkiv, for example. Something that happened in Kharkiv. Uh, the, the, the 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 different ways of attacking, different ways of doing things, attacking them where they're not expecting. 
where they don't want to be attacked, all those things. But if you have a permanent a permanent defense around the whole of the country and you just say, we're going to do a fighting defense, is that a fighting standing still defense or is that a fighting mobile defense? But if it's a fighting still defense, we are going to get eaten piece by piece by piece by piece, which is what is happening at the moment. And, and that lesson should be quite clear. If we stand and fight, we're going to get destroyed piecemeal because we don't have the weapons or the system to do to do that sort of fighting. To be honest, I think that um, a lot of our listeners who are going to be watching this interview are probably going to say that perhaps you're being too harsh, that perhaps uh, Ukraine really is suffering so much right now, primarily because of the lack of ammunition from the West, that there is only so much that Ukrainian forces can do within the constraints. What about the ammunition from Ukraine? Uh, what about the ammunition from Ukraine? But it's not just the ammunition from the West. It's easy to blame the West. How many of the, how much in Avdiivka? How many of the drones that were fired, used in Avdiivka, came from civil society, and how many came from the government system? And I think you'll find the percentage is horrible from society. In other words, the majority of defensive drones attack, attacking drones used in Avdiivka came not from the military system, not from government. They came from people, garages. That, that sounds plausible, given how many fundraisers we've seen in the last months. Correct. And I, I had someone said to me that the figure was 5% from the government, 95% from society. Okay, I don't believe it's that high, but it's certainly high. And it's certainly a lot more than it should be, which means that the, mm -hmm. you know, blame the West for these things is, is only one part of the picture. Because there is blame that needs to go on to the military, onto the civil system of government at the same time for not delivering what is needed to be delivered. So what do you think the follow-up of Div is going to mean for the front line moving forward? I mean, we're already seeing increased attacks in other areas. Is there going to be like a new Russian offensive somewhere? Are they going to move to bigger cities around Avdivka? You just got to say that Russia will pick on somewhere that they think is weak. That is, that is what is going to happen next. So there'll be somewhere else. There will be somewhere else. Hopefully. Do you have any predictions? No. No, because it, this, is, this is war. You don't predict in things like this. You just, you just prepare yourself for, for knowing that it's going to happen somewhere else and that when it happens somewhere else, you can't afford for the city to be outflanked and destroyed in the same way that we did this time. So, because it'll happen again exactly the same. And, uh, Now, you know, you could say maybe maybe this is a political decision to buy time, but by God, if it is, it's a bloody expensive decision to lose so many people when pulling back a bit earlier, pulling back a bit earlier and 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 I mean we've we've thrown in the reserve forces. It might have been better to have thrown them in earlier to counterattack somewhere whilst Russia was not in a, in such a strong position or to counterattack in another place. And, you know, it's no good saying we haven't got the ammunition to do a counterattack. If we haven't got ammunition to do a counterattack, we haven't got ammunition to leave people stuck in Avdiivka either. So there's got to be some rethinking about, the, about this. We're now going to be jumping to the community question of today's episode. As always, I'll remind you guys to go to kivindependent.com slash membership to subscribe to the Kiv Independent. You get really cool perks for becoming a member of our community, like exclusive discussions with editors and journalists, 
and also the chance to send us in questions before every single episode of the podcast. So the one that I chose this time is what relation would you draw between this retreat and Delusny's replacement at the top of, you know, Ukraine's armed forces? Do you think there's any causality one way or another, or perhaps what might have happened differently if he was still the commander, if anything? Uh, I, the, the answer to that is I can't comment on it for the simple way that I really, I don't understand if there is causality in that it's not clear that there is causality. Would it have been done differently? Well, the answer is probably not, because if you look at it, um, uh, we already knew that we were going to have to withdraw when Zolushny was actually removed. And there hasn't been really any particular change, even with, with, with Sursky. You know, say, people are saying, yeah, you know, we've agreed to withdraw. Well, whoopee dee, you had to. It wasn't a case of a nice decision, uh, we're doing something clever. It was forced. It was a forced decision. And a, and a late forced decision, um, which uh, without a proper plan, there's a rushed plan for it. So there obviously there wasn't probably wasn't a plan before, or maybe there was. I don't know. Maybe Zeluzhny had a plan and that was going to work. Nobody knows these things, um, but we just know that you know it, it's not as tidy as we would like, and that we've lost some people, and it's not clear whether. 110 brigades still exist as a as an organization in any way shape or form hopefully we'll find out and i just finish with one bit which is i have no criticism of the way soldiers fight whatsoever i mean i think that they've done a remarkable job and those who stayed at the front even even till the last seconds uh, are, are brave beyond brave um but we have to change we have to think about our strategies and our organization and People have got to be trained how to do these things. If you're not trained to do a fighting withdrawal, then you can't do a fighting withdrawal properly. So we have to start identifying how to train. Well, Mr. Grant, thank you so much. It was really interesting to listen to you. Thank you. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you like this episode, please subscribe to us and like our content wherever you're listening to this show. Make sure to become a member of our community by going to kivindependent.com slash membership and subscribing to us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, and X. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening.